Coming up this hour, we're going to talk COVID. We're going to talk the debates. We're going to sneak some asteroid news in there. And then we're joined by David Quasis. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I think I forgot how to do this. I've I've been gone for a stretch. <laughs> some of you who are paying attention, you know that Brian Fromm handled the intro yesterday because i texted him and he very graciously agreed to still kind of take the lead yesterday this is maybe inside baseball but when you're out of practice doesn't it feel weird to like get back into the groove especially doing the introductions that for some reason seems like the hardest part doesn't it a hundred percent especially you know you were gone for 10 days or so and it's you get back and and you think it's like riding a bicycle but oh it does not really work that way (laughs) it really really does not i do want to say this coming up in the uh Later in the hour, Dr. David Koizis, who is a political scientist and an author and an educator, we're going to ask him a bunch of like political related questions. You're not going to want to miss that. He was on the show about a month or so ago and just a brilliant mind, brilliant insight. Really, really grateful that he's coming back on. One of the things that we have been doing, Brian, a little bit is uh, just sort of tackling a couple of headlines. These are in no particular order, but sometimes we'll take the very first segment of the day and just sort of rapid fire hit some headlines. We don't have any kind of deep commentary or angle or agenda for them just thought they were good things for people to know so that's how this first segment is going to go and uh per usual brian i'm going to let you go ahead and decide which one you want to tackle first yeah I th- i'd love to tackle what i think is the biggest news of the day for our area and that is as covid19 cases continue to rise uh according to today governor pritzker he announced a dupage county where you and i both live uh, Kane County, Kankakee County, and Will Counties are going to face increased restrictions effective Friday because now we've gone uh, three straight days of above 8% positivity rate. And so basically, so you if you haven't heard this yet, you might be wondering, well, what does that mean? It basically means no more indoor dining in restaurants beginning on Friday um, and, and all the stuff from that. And then also like uh, gatherings uh, are being lowered again. And so Man, when I heard this, I know you and I talked about it yesterday that this was a possibility, but <clears throat> when I heard this today, I, I found myself more discouraged than I thought I would be. Hmm. Uh, and then my kids went back to school today, but now you hear of other school districts uh, who immediately switched, including Naperville out your way. And uh, it, it's just a reminder. And I know we don't necessarily need this reminder, but it's a reminder again that, you know, COVID-19 is not going anywhere. It's not going to magically disappear and we're still in the midst of it. And now if when you're watching the news, they're kind of talking, are we in the midst of the second wave and it's about to get cold and we're all going to be inside? And yeah, I found myself just uh, kind of feeling the heaviness of the pandemic again that I don't feel like I have felt in a long time. Just kind of, oh, things are shutting down again. It's getting cold outside. Man, this is crazy. And so I think that's certainly the biggest news of the day, especially locally, uh, as as our area is kind of going backwards right now in the COVID-19 fight. Starting the day with the real feel good story, Brian. Thanks for. Uh, I think it's the important one, though. <laughs> kicking us off with the good vibes. Uh, <laughs> I was going to start with a little more like lighthearted and work our way up to uh, catastrophic, but yeah, let's let's uh, let's ping pong around a little bit. I don't even know what to do with this one. Did you see this from National Geographic? It says in daring mission, NASA is about to snatch pieces of an asteroid. The historic attempt to sample the asteroid Bennu could provide clues to the origins of our solar system and of life itself. I didn't even know that was a thing. In fact, the spacecraft is going to have to navigate what it says is a very tight area the size of a few parking spaces, 26 feet, as it attempts to sample material from the surface 
of Asteroid Bennu. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly. That's how little I know about this story. I just couldn't believe that this was a thing that we're even potentially capable of doing. Like something traveling at those speeds, right? we can land a spacecraft on to sample some of the surface. That's That seems insane to me. I think any time I watch a movie or a documentary or read something like this that has anything to do with space and space travel, it blows my mind that we can Seriously. do any of it, that we can launch people into space, that we can, you know, you watch like Apollo 13 or all these things, that we can do anything like that. And this fits right in there. Landing on an asteroid, it, it's just unbelievable. And then you you hear about all that goes into it and all this. You're reminded how brilliant some people are out there. But I'm with you. Every time I ever read anything space travel related, I just, it just it blows my mind for sure. It uh, who was this? Uh, Kyle Kinane. He's a comedian that uh, that I I just personally find really funny. And he's talking about turning 35 and not really having his life together, and you know how depressing that could be. And he he's been rambling on it for a while. And he goes, he just has this long pause. And he looks at the ground and goes, "Some people my age are astronauts." And I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> it is pretty. When I look at stuff like this, so I think, oh, yeah, your job is in a different stratosphere of difficult. Like, I, I, yeah. I've never in my life had to even think about calculations to land a spacecraft on an asteroid. Anyway, you guys can yeah. look that up yourselves. It's a pretty remarkable story. Uh, another kind of feel good. I don't know if you are a uh, an Everybody Loves Raymond fan, but this headline from Deadline says Everybody Loves Raymond cast sets first ever benefit reunion to honor Peter Boyle. Did you hear about this one? I did. I saw something just on the Today Show today, but I, I was, uh, when Everybody Loves Raymond was like first out, I never watched it. Like I just never got into the habit. I remember uh, just never watched it. But then when it was in syndication, I remember my wife and I went through a season where we we just watched it all the time. And that show is hilarious. And so it's fun <laughs> to see them back together joking uh, for a good cause. Uh. I know that you're sort of the self-proclaimed sports guy. You want to take the uh, the sports story from this first segment? Yeah, Dak Prescott, the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, I was watching the game where this happened the other day because he was playing my favorite team, the Giants. And he, it was one of those football injuries where you're just like, I, I, I wish I wasn't watching the game right now because right. Uh, his ankle broke. And uh, it was one of those where it just, it was clear from the TV that it was bad uh, and he was crying going off. There's all these kinds of things about his contract. It's all was just a really sad story. Well, uh, apparently Dak Prescott is a uh, is a Christ follower. And the, the Christian headlines here talks about uh, an interview that he did where Dak Prescott says, I know it's bigger than anything that I see or could have imagined, but I'm trusting him. My faith is doubled down more than ever. And I'm thankful that he's my savior and he guides me in life. So I know through him. All of this will be possible and all this will be a great comeback and a great story. And so it's just uh, it, it's um, it, it's pretty interesting to see him go. This is hard. I don't understand this. This tests my faith. But uh, God is good. And I'm going to put my faith in him. And you're it's a, one of those reminders, again, that these football players and other athletes and other people we see on our TVs, they aren't robots. Right. Like they feel right. and they hurt and they, they're sad. Uh, and seeing him rely on his faith and prayer and prayer of others, prayer from others, uh, I think is is uh, encouraging, to say the least. It's encouraging to see him uh, kind of speak out in that way. Which I do appreciate. You've brought that up a number of times that these people that we you know we watch play a game on a TV aren't robots and they're not right. just athletes like that. You know, that is a pretty devastating thing 
to happen to anybody, but especially an yeah. athlete. And I think, yeah, to have that kind of perspective is is uh, is super, super inspiring. So lastly, I feel like I need to apologize. I don't know why I chose this article because at the top there's a, a Borat ad. I don't know if you've got the same Borat ad at the top that I did. I don't. <laughs> okay, good. I won't describe it to you because it, it'll probably get bleeped. But uh, I saw it. And I was like, oh, I should apologize to Brian for inflicting that on him. So uh, we'll we'll ask David Coises this uh, a little bit later in the show because I'd love to I'd love to know what a political scientist thinks of this. But uh, many people are aware that the commission approves rules to mute mics at final Trump Biden debate. What do you think of this one? I think it's much needed uh, if anyone who watched the first debate, the way they talked over each other, and especially President Trump talking over Joe Biden. But it is just so symbolic of our politics that that in some ways uh, we need mechanisms in there so that they don't treat each other like five year olds. <laughs> like right, right. We have to make sure you're quiet. But for anybody who watched this first debate. Uh, this is a welcome move that now they're going to have the ability to mute the other one so that the other candidate can actually get out a thought and say what they want. So uh, I think it's a good thing, but it's also sad that it's necessary. Well, and I'd be curious to know what everyone else thinks, too, because I, I've certainly heard a number of people say, like, no, that's the nature of debate is the opportunity to interrupt or speak over. That's part of the theater. That's part of the art form. I'll be really curious to know what uh, Dr. Coises thinks with regards to is this a good move? Uh, are there suspicions that? You know, one side will be favored based on who holds the power of mute. There's just there's a whole bunch of other components there that I think will be super interesting. Like always, though, all of those articles on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And we would love to know what you think. Coming up next from Baptist News Global headline reads, America, we've got to address the source of the pressure, not just the steam it puts off. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. So glad that you are here. I don't know who recommended Baptist News Global. Uh, a friend yeah. of mine, I think, in our think tank a couple of months ago said this was a source that they went to a lot. And I've I found a number of their articles to be quite interesting. This one from Sam Harrell uh, just yesterday. America, we've got to address the source of the pressure, not just the steam it puts off. What's going on with this article? Yeah. And Sam Harrell begins by saying, I'm not a psychotherapist or anywhere close to an expert in family systems theory. I'm finding some clarity, though, in applying what little I do know to our current societal predicaments. So that's the background. He says it goes something like this. Uh, pressure begins to build in a system not unlike the pressure one might imagine in a cooling or a heating system. If the pressure becomes too great, at some point it blows at a particular joint, hose or fixture all attention then is directed to the pressure release point, often with little regard for the actual cause of the pressure. He goes on to say in family systems theory, the pressure release point is generally referred to as the identified patient, like a child acting out or a parent drinking too much or chronic anxiety in a family member. The behavior of the identified patient is rarely the underlying problem. However, right. just what gets a family into a therapist's office uh, to attend, hopefully, to underlying issues. Those issues or pressures may result from a particular dysfunction or disorder, a shift or change in circumstances, environmental factors, or a specific trauma that ultimately manifests as a disruption in the family balance. So scanning the horizon of our North American predicament reveals numerous examples of, quote, acting out. Failed politics and an out-of-control partisan pendulum, our shift from global leadership to bullying, demonstrations and riots met with brutality, economic turmoil and unprecedented uh, income wealth disparities, to name a few. Let's not forget disasters. 
that are now beginning to appear more man-made than natural. Yes. And all that in the context of a global pandemic. However, I would argue, he says, that COVID-19 is itself more a symptom than a primary source mm. of the pressure. So before moving on, basically, I, I think it's fascinating. He's saying we constantly uh, and rightfully at times deal with just where things are uh, at at the biggest issues, right? Where they're right. Bl- child acting out, with steam coming out, whatever else it might be, whatever picture you want to use. And, and what he's arguing here is we've got to get to some of these root issues. Otherwise, we're going to keep having these other things blow up. And I think he's right on, right? In Christianity, in, in our faith, we'll often talk about uh, in getting to root issues instead of just dealing with fruit issues, right? You got to get to the root, but oftentimes we just deal with the fruit issues. And, and so I do think he's certainly onto something as we look at what's going on in our society right now. And it's something that we've talked about in, in a ministry context, a leadership context. There's, there's a lot of other uh, examples of this, I think, where if you're, you know, if you're wanting to address cultural issues, you can't just simply deal with, you know, like what this article refers to as the the steam. You know, if we, if we spend our entire careers, our entire parenting, just simply chasing after steam, you're never you're never going to get to the root of what's actually going on. Now, as an image, that makes a ton of sense. As a practice, I think it's actually much harder to do. I think whether it's a complex system of of leadership or it's a culture that's gone awry or, or honestly, even just in parenting, if it's a kid that's manifesting a certain behavior over and over again, if it were easy to go after the roots, I think more people would do it. The problem is, especially when you're in kind of like survival mode, the way that a lot of us feel amidst a pandemic, it's tough to even have the wherewithal, let alone the bandwidth to say, okay, let's pause for a second, do the hard work of actually looking at the systems and structures. I think a lot of people would want to do that. But if you, if it's sort of like do or die mode, like you were saying, it makes sense to just go after the thing that crops up rather than, you know, the, the deeper underlying thing. So he goes on to say, so what might be the sources of these systemic pressures for one racism and the related isms of oppression. At some point, the chickens come home to roost as Malcolm X said, and in order for a wound to be healed and the climate of hate dissipated, the knife has to be acknowledged and removed folks far more able and articulate than I uh, have in recent days shed much light on these systemic injustices, but I believe there is still a more fundamental issue. Uh, he says, we're killing ourselves and others for more, more. Yes, more. We're killing ourselves and others for more, more power, more dominance, more wealth, more privilege, more control and more stuff. It's no surprise that more is a common denominator in most of what Christianity has labeled the capital vices or seven deadly sins. Think of it. Greed, Envy, lust, and gluttony, and even sloth all center around more, leaving me to wonder if this might be our original sin. Nowhere is this more evident than in our treatment of the community of all creation into which we are all born. Global populations continue to swell towards unsustainable numbers, not because some of us are rabbits, but because poverty uh, poverty and infant mortality in parts of our world counterintuitively drive such growth. Evidence the world over suggests that when basic needs are met, health, safety, shelter, food, education, and work, family size stabilizes, and so does global migration. In her poem, Home, Kenyan-born Somali poet Warson Shire states, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. <laughs> that, wow. What an image that is there. I'd love to know what you think, Brian, of this author working to pinpoint the notion of more as being one of, if not the central reasons for the steam that we're seeing. Yeah, I hadn't ever thought of that. So that was a new one. But he, when he points out kind of the seven deadly sins there saying, you know, gluttony, more food, sloth, more, you go, okay, that, that does start to make sense. I, I think he's on to something there. I think 
whether it be more or comfort or having everything, no problems. I, I think those kinds of things that especially in the West we search for and we almost think like our are kind of our birthright when a pandemic comes, when um you know, when we're faced with other hardships, I, I think it builds up this pressure that becomes uh, really difficult. And he's arguing that we need to get to the root of these issues. Uh, but as you said, the reason we don't get to the roots of issues is because that's really difficult. None of us likes to look that deeply. We want to just kind of get the steam to stop from blowing and kind of feel like everything's OK. Uh, but, man, I do think I had never thought of this. Maybe I don't know if you've ever thought of it. I've never heard about, hey, if, even if you look at kind of the big seven deadly sins, that that underlying issue of more being there, I've never really given that much thought or heard that taught before. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really compelling thought, and especially with regards to you know the context and culture that that you and I were born and raised in. You know, sometimes the obsession with more is almost the water we swim in. So it's it can be difficult to decipher because you're like, oh yeah, do people live differently than that? Like in some ways, the subtext of the American dream is more, right? Bigger houses, nicer cars, whatever. I mean, I think that that's shifting and maybe has shifted, but let me let me just end the way the article ends because I think it's a good, it's a kind of good call and reminder for us. He says, yet we are a people of faith. We believe in the God of the downtrodden, the God of the least of these and the voiceless. We are saved by and follow after the way of Jesus who commanded us to love our neighbor, even our enemies, not to cause their marginalization. The pipes are bursting. Are we just going to replace the broken parts in November or will we, with God's help, begin to heal our system by relinquishing, repenting and stopping our perpetual accumulation and consumption project? The abundant life promised by Jesus doesn't mean more. It means freely available and enough for everyone. Either way, regardless of where you land on some of the uh, specific points of that article, I I think that's a pretty it's a pretty brilliant call i think for all of us especially jesus followers and as always that's on our facebook page and uh we would love to know what you think coming up next though i'm absolutely thrilled to have this guest back that is dr david coises he's the author of political visions and illusions as well as we answer to another he's going to stick around for two segments coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And uh, finally back to the show. We had such a good time last time that we just couldn't wait to get him back on the show. David Coises, welcome back to the show, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's our pleasure to have you back. Would you just take a moment or two and just remind our audience who you are, what you're about, what do you do, what are you passionate about? Certainly. I, I um, am an academic political scientist, retired. I'm a, I'm a global scholar with an organization called Global Scholars Canada. I, uh, I have a PhD in government and international studies from the University of Notre Dame. I taught undergraduate political science for, for 30 years. And uh, I am the author of, of two books, uh, 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 We Answer to Another Authority, Office in the Image of God. And that was published in 2014. And then my most recent book, which was also my first book, is now in a, a, a second edition, is Political Visions and Illusions, which came out just last year. Oh, that's outstanding. David, I'm curious, as a political scientist and someone who's you know, given their life to the study of politics, as you watch the, uh, the American election going on here, this election, do you love this time or are you disheartened by what's going on? How do you feel right now two weeks before our election? That's yeah. That's I'm 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 uneasy. I guess I could I could put it that way. I'm not without hope, but but I am uneasy. 
Uh, it seems in many ways as though the um, American polity is, is very much divided. Uh, uh, people distrust each other. Uh, people are, um, uh, seem to regard anything they don't like as, as fake news. Um, I don't know that there's a lot of, of instances of people sitting down with each other talking out their differences, which is what politics really ought to be about. Hmm. One of the things we talked about real briefly at the beginning of the hour was uh, the news that for the next debate, there will be mic muting. And Brian and I, we're not political scientists. We, we barely know how we got a show in the first place. Uh, <laughs> more than just like, do you like it or not like it, which tends to be what Facebook and Twitter is. I'd, I'd love to know, are there is there a deeper significance to that that shift in a, in a debate forum for, for a moderator to have the power of a mute button. I'd, I'd just love to know what you think of that. I, I, th- I think it's past due. I think they should have done that for the first debate. Uh, I, I sat there, I watched it, and I thought, why don't they just cut out the mic? They've gone past their time. Um, their interruptions just just, just um, shut down the mic. I have no difficulty with that, especially right now in this election. Hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, without getting into you know who you're voting for or support, I'm just curious, uh, as a political scientist and someone who's watched kind of the, the larger arc, did it surprise you either in 2016 or even now in 2020 that somebody like Donald Trump, who wasn't a politician or whatever else, was able to come up to the presidency? Did you see that coming or was that did that totally take you off guard? It it it, it did not take me off guard because um, for the last 50 years, ever since the um, political parties made their internal reforms um, after the 1968 election, uh, a disaster was waiting to happen. So basically, prior to that that time, candidates for public office were generally chosen in the proverbial smoke-filled rooms. And of course, everybody uses that term, smoke-filled rooms, in a in a in a pejorative sense. But but it it it, it served a function because this, in the smoke-filled rooms, you'd have genuine. Um, uh, uh, officials, uh, public officials, office holders who were members of the party vetting possible candidates for, uh, uh, for, for approval. Hmm. And I think it's, it's possible to excessively democratize a political system, which in many respects I think is what has happened in, in the United States over the last half a century. Um, simply submitting a candidate uh, uh, well, let me put it this way. A candidate submitting him or herself to the people during the primary elections without any kind of uh, pre-selection process, without any kind of a vetting process by the people who know that candidate best, I think that's a recipe for disaster. I would much prefer to see something along the lines of the old smoke-filled rooms. <laughs> Maybe now they would have no smoking signs. I think that, that's, that's, that's a possibility. But, but, but whatever, they're, whatever they're smoking or eating or doing whatever um, in, in those rooms, somebody needs to sit down and actually vet candidates uh, you know, to, 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 to examine their record, to see whether they really are qualified for the office which they are, are seeking. So, you know, if you get a job with a major corporation um, such as IBM or, or Exxon or ExxonMobil, uh, you know, you're, you're going to submit to interviews. They're going to want to know your qualifications. It's now possible for somebody to make the, the highest public office in the land to, to attain that office without any kind of, uh, of, of preclearance or interview stage at all by people who are in the know. And I don't think that's good for a political system. One of the things that Brian and I have talked a lot about this last year in particular as pastors is just seeing the rampant division we've seen, particularly online. You know, we've 
we've pontificated as to why that is. Is it actually worse than it was 10 years ago is it, or is it just more visual? And uh, one of the things that you mentioned on your blog, Byzantine Calvinist, which is a great title, by the way, just yesterday <laughs> was this, uh, this study by Moore and Common regarding the perception gap. And uh, Brian yes. and I have actually referenced that study a couple of times. But I would, I would yes. love to get your take on that. Yeah, I, now I've not read the whole thing. I've just I've just um, read the read the highlights, but I think it's rather uh, rather extraordinary the number of people who um, uh, the, the the number of people who have friends only within their particular um, mm-hmm. within their particular uh, um, uh, political opinions. And I think that's that that that's very unhealthy. I think it's 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 better that we have friends that represent different political. Uh, points of view and to, to nurture those friendships and to recognize that politics isn't everything and that politics should not be determining friendships because friendship is something that's distinctive. It's something that's been celebrated since the time of, uh, of Aristotle, since the time of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, of ancient Israel as well. And, and a friendship is a friendship and it ought not to be confused with a, a, a political comradeship, if you will. Is that a is that a newer phenomenon? Is that something that's growing more through social media and other things, or has that always been the way we've been culturally? Well, I, I think people do tend to choose friends who are like themselves and and with whom they share uh, basic commitments about life, and and I think there's nothing unusual about that. But I do think that with the um, the rise of social social media, we have this illusion that we are now we now create the communities around us, and that we can choose who's going to be part of that community, and we are in the very center of that community. And that's a very it's it's narcissistic. It's it's not really what friendship is all about because friendship. Is about mutual giving to each other, and and that kind of friendship, I'm afraid, is is rare these days, especially among males. That that's my sense. Maybe among females, you find that sort of friendship uh, today, but I think among males, the sort of friendship that cross might cross political lines, but but there's a genuine affection that, that that's that's holding the friends together. That's something that we need to nurture, and I don't think political polarization um, is helping us. In, with that respect, and I don't think social media are helping us either. Hmm. One of the things I actually remember from this study was just how bad both sides were at perceiving the values and views of the other. Like it seemed to be pretty even both ways, which you know to me leads to all sorts of other implications. But we'll, we only have about a minute left in this segment. I'd love to know, just in line with what you just said, do you have like maybe one or two practical suggestions for maybe even baby steps towards? building or cultivating friendships with people you know, who might be quote unquote outside your tribe get to know the people who are around you um, get to know the people in your neighborhood and that's not that's not easy to do because neighborhoods are not quite as um, there's not as much um, friendship growing out of neighborliness as as there used to be but I think it's uh, you know don't don't simply look within your political um, uh, network or, or social network, but try to go outside of that in some, in some fashion. And very often families help us with that because, you know, our children marry people whom we don't necessarily know, and we have to learn to love people who are from different families, but now are now related to us as in-laws in, in some way. And I think you're going to find that more likely within a larger family rather than a smaller family. Yeah. Hmm. That's great. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dr. David Koizis. He's the author of a new book called Political Visions and Delusions. And that's a great segue, by the way, because coming up next, I want to ask you a little bit more about this notion of politics in the family. And with the holidays around the corner, how can we actually navigate that well? That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we're joined for a second segment by David Coises. He is the author of Political Visions and Delusions and an educator and an all-around swell guy. And, and David, I think you just have such a unique perspective and wisdom with regards to this political climate that we find ourselves in. And one of the things that I keep hearing people talk about with the holidays around the corner is, hey, if you go home or if you're around family members, just don't bring up politics, whatever you do. And my, my sense has always been, oh, man, if we if we can't talk about politics with our family, what hope do we have to engage in these conversations with our communities or our churches? What, what, what is your sense there with regards to how we navigate political discussions within our families? Right. Well, I, I you know, I don't I don't really have any, um, um, you know, uh, clear advice on that but I, but I do think that um, that it, it would be nice that in family settings if we were actually t- to be able to um, to sit down and discuss our differences you know not only within family settings but um, um, you know maybe maybe with our neighbors maybe maybe with friends as well it's not particularly easy to do and of course it's it's, it's interesting that that I went uh, when I was growing up I always used to hear that that at at parties, uh, don't don't mention religion and politics because those are two divisive subjects, and you're supposed to avoid them. Uh, and what do I do? I go around and I, I turn right around in my in my youth, and I start studying religion and politics, <laughs> which, which which may go go which may go some way um, in some way in explaining why I'm uh, invited to so very few pa- pa- parties <laughs> these days. But um, um, but, but but yeah. Uh, I, I, th- I think it would be good if we could sit down within our families and talk these things out. It isn't always easy to do because very often we think that we have our uh, we have our minds set. We we think that we are um, uh, that that our opinions are set in stone, and we prefer not to have to listen to people on the other side. Right. But I think it is true. If we can't do it in our families, then then how can we do it in a larger political community? And that's of course what 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 we ought to be doing. Yeah. And, and likewise with churches, Ian and I are both pastors. I'm, I'm wondering what would your advice and your counsel be to pastors and church leaders about how to navigate and help their churches, the people within their churches, be able to have political discussions without it fracturing and tearing them apart as well? Yeah, that, that's a that's a difficult um, it's a difficult question because I know of pastors who have um, been run out of their churches because they started. Um, uh, pronouncing on 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 politics uh, uh, and you, and you have to handle it very carefully because i think if if somebody stands in the pulpit and says you know you um, our congregation uh if you're going to be real christians you have to support the 15 dollar per hour minimum wage uh you know that that that's that's too much uh there, there there's no way that 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 a, a minister or even uh an ecclesiastical assembly um ought to be pronouncing on something like that on the other hand uh there are many many passages in the bible which instruct us to do justice especially to those who are most vulnerable and in the old testament in particular uh there are three groups that are singled out the 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 widow the orphan and the sojourner and these are people that that are the most vulnerable. The sojourner is not part of the of the land uh, tenure system. They're, they are immigrants, if if you will. Um, a, a widow uh, may be in a vulnerable position when when her husband dies. An orphan is is probably the most helpless at all because the because he or she is still an immature child, and uh, and that's something which which ministers and ecclesiastical assemblies ought to tell 
the parishioners in the pews. You need to look out for justice. You need to do justice. You need to, as, as a citizen, you need to be sure that, that you um, are, are monitoring the larger body politic to make sure that justice is done. And if it's not being done, then you need to work to, to, to secure justice, especially for those who are most vulnerable. That's a good word. I, I'm, I'm curious how you would respond to some of what we've seen, which Brian and I will often you know, talk about like as the, the cross and the flag holding hands. You know, We've seen clips of church services. I saw one just yesterday of a, a hymn being sung, and there was a whole team of people dancing with American flags behind them while they sang it. And uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated to know your perspective on the, the union between church and state and how, how can churches engage in political discourse without necessarily like trying to baptize the country as a whole how do you how do you navigate those discussions right right I, to be honest when, when i when i see those kinds of things that you're talking about those kinds of um uh pageants or displays or what, what have you it, it, it makes my skin crawl um it, it, it's not something that i'm that i'm that i'm terribly keen on because i think there is a real risk of idolatry in that, in that respect. Now, we, we have every right to love our respective countries, to love our respective homelands. Uh, you know, God has placed us in a particular uh, country, in a particular homeland, and we ought to, to work to improve that homeland in the best we can, in the best way w- that we can. And, uh, um, and I think that's what we ought to, ought to be doing. We can become um, teary-eyed when we think of our country. Um, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, there's nothing wrong with waving the flag either at the appropriate occasions. Um, I'm not very keen on seeing national flags inside church um, sanctuaries or even in the foyer outside the, the church itself. Uh, but I think there is a, a place for a certain modest kind of flag waving. Not that my country is the best in the world. Uh, you might think it's the best because it's your country, but hmm. other people think that their countries are the best because they, they grew up there. It's, it's, it's their homeland. And I think we need to recognize that. Yeah. I'm curious as a political scientist, I'm, I'm wondering uh, there's been a lot of talk I've seen on Twitter and other places about the Electoral College versus changing the way we do elections, just a popular vote. Uh, well, curious where you stand on that and maybe gives help us understand maybe the pros and cons of uh, one versus the other there. Yes. Well, the Electoral College was established in in. Um in, in 1787, at the time that the Constitution was being negotiated by the American founders, and their intention was that the electors would would, ga- would gather together or vote wherever they are, and they and they would exercise um, their own um, independent initiative in deciding who was going to be president. So they never they never really envisioned that there would be a popular vote. As a matter of fact, James Madison would have preferred to see the Congress electing the president rather than this shadowy entity called the people electing the president. Uh, when the people elect a president, there's always the danger that the person who comes to office is going to be a Napoleonic figure who's going to promise to cut through red tape and to get things done. And of course, that's, there's a danger uh, in that respect of, of having a kind of a dictatorial figure. Mm-hmm. Um, now, on the other hand, you know, the Electoral College also was intended to empower the states as well as states. Um, on the other hand, those who argue in favor of popular election, now, it's, it, it, there's something to be said for that. Uh, we all know that in 2016, Hillary Clinton had a larger popular vote total than, um, than, than the current president. Um, 
and and that happened in 2000 as well with uh, with uh, George W. Bush and and Al Gore. Um, if there there was to be uh, adopted a popular vote, it would probably have to be a, a, a two ballot vote, um, as they do in France. So if one candidate did not get the absolute majority, 50% plus one of the popular votes, then there would have to be a second round in which the top two vote getters would, uh, um, would stand a second time. Either that or you could have a preferential ballot in which people would be ranking candidates, which, which right. amounts to basically the same thing. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. Now, um, I know that we're going to go a little long here, but I, I just have so many other questions for you <laughs> that I, I want to make sure to get your perspective on before we wrap up here. So, yeah, sure. I, you know, in just a minute or two left, could you? I want to ask you kind of two questions. One, um, is the two-party system broken? Maybe a, a brief history of the two-party system, and, and is it broken? And secondly, how does that play into sort of the, the personality politics that we see right now? Oh, yes, I believe it's broken. I, I've, I, I tell people that, that the two major parties are diseased parodies of their former selves. Hmm. I doubt very much that, that Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman would recognize today's Democratic Party. I doubt very much that somebody like Dwight Eisenhower or even Richard Nixon would uh, recognize today's uh, Republican Party. Hmm. Um, uh, they've, they've, the, the extremists within those parties have, have uh, come to the fore. Um, it's not as though they differ with each other in, on basic principles, but 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 they are. It's more like a, an intramural dispute. It's more like a a, 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 a dispute within inside the family itself. Mm-hmm. And um, and and yes, I do think the party system is broken. And when the party system is broken, that means that that spells a threat to the smooth functioning of the constitution as a whole. Mm-hmm. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Dr. Koizis, who is not only an author, an educator, he's written a couple of books. One's called Political Visions and Illusions. And before that, we answer to another. You can also learn more at byzantinecalvinist.blogspot.com. Dr. Koizis, again, such a pleasure to have you on. Please, please, please come back on. We really love hearing your voice. Oh, I, I would today. be very happy to do so. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Well, that means a lot. Thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Home for your thoughts. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Zoom meeting length, political homelessness, and spiritual tranquilizers. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good for part two. Faster, louder, less energy. That's the, <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's our promise to you. <laughs> we, we guarantee to be halfway asleep for the second half of the show. It's like, uh, have you listened to the show half speed yet? Have we talked about this? We have, and I haven't done it. No, I should it's do it. It's the easiest thing in the world. What is this? Hey, I want, I want to get to the, the not psychological yet reasons. <laughs> You've not. Yeah. What also haven't you watched? Social dilemma. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I still want to. I just haven't done it. I believe oh. that you want to. Just this weekend. This weekend. <laughs> I don't buy any of that. I, I've been gone for 11 days, and you promised before I get back. It doesn't matter. It's fine. Yeah. Live your life. Um, Live your life. <laughs> Thank you. What was I saying? I, where was I? Anyway, uh, yeah, a couple of things that I wanted to hit real quickly. You know that we have a Facebook page. You can uh, dialogue with us there. You can also send us a message. You can also, I don't mention this enough, there's an AM 1160 app. Like, that's really great for listening live via the live stream. I, I only use that. I don't actually use the live stream link anymore. The app 
is a great place to get more information about the show. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get your podcast, we're super grateful for anyone who has given us any love over there. And uh, I cannot believe we haven't had him on the show yet. But David French continues to be somebody that I almost now like instinctually look to like, oh, I wonder if he's weighed in on this yet. Just because I don't know, man. Can you unpack for me why why are we so drawn to his writing and his perspective? Do you have any idea why? Uh, a, he's brilliant. And B, I think there's a humility to him. Like you hmm. you got me to listen to when he was on with Ezra Klein. Yes. Uh, and it was just fascinating. But you could tell there was like this mutual respect and humility that was awesome to hear. Yep. Uh, honestly, I, I think some of his writings are... Uh, I think I can speak for both of us, at least for myself, including this article we're about to do, this blog we're about to do is kind of where I feel like I am in life. Like, I feel like I mm-hmm. agree with what a lot, a lot of what he says as well. Uh, and so it's not like I'm reading him going, oh, I want to read this because I'm going to just really disagree with. It. I tend to go. Yeah, that's a great point. That's kind of where I'm at right now, which honestly, maybe maybe we're guilty of the echo chambers and confirmation bias that we're often talking against. But he always he just seems balanced to me and fair. And like you said, brilliant. So the headline kind of caught my attention. This is from a couple of days ago. The spiritual blessing of political homelessness. And then the subheading is on the liberating power of a political declaration of independence. So I've I've read from a number of people over the years. This isn't new to this year. I remember even like Shane Claiborne. Mm-hmm. 10 years ago wrote something about being a, I think he said political refugee, same, same kind of notion, same kind of concept. But my guess is, um, and I think I'm right here. A lot of people feel this way. There's mm-hmm. plenty of people that have, you know, uh, a strong party loyalty, but it feels like even more people that at least that I'm encountering are feeling like, uh, I don't really know where I fit in this system anymore. And, you know, leading to, up to an election, obviously, and all the concerns that people are bringing to the table, there is a, a very real sense of like disequilibrium. Like, oh, I, I used to feel like I fit more squarely in one or the other, but I don't, I don't feel that anymore. So French, and again, it's long. We're not gonna have time to get into all of it, but he, he's kind of talking about how freeing it is to actually recognize your own political homelessness. So why, why don't you uh, get us into it a little bit? Yeah. And again, that phrase political homelessness, I just feel like I can really resonate with at this point. And so he says this French writes. And again, uh, he writes at the French press, which, you know, he says is his favorite name of a blog. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, it's always long and well worth your time. So go to our Facebook page and check it out there. It's a really good read. He writes, I first began to notice the discontent even before Trump, the rise of negative partisanship and the corresponding intolerance for di- for dissent within political parties. He writes parenthetically, does anyone remember the endless rhino hunts of the Obama era Hmm. amplified a sense of both Christian discontent and Christian fear? You may have had material uh, disagreements with your own tribe, but at the same time, you heard the voices urging you to hold fast. Can you possibly let the other side win? After all, they will destroy us. They will destroy our country. Never mind that their ranks are also filled with millions of Christian believers. But there's something deeply unsatisfying about that stance. Your spirit rebels against the imperative to be a team player, to not call out clear injustice on your own side, to focus exclusively on your opponent's sins. You remember Christ's warning about noting the speck in your brother's eye when there's a log in your own, and you wonder, can that apply even to politics? Eventually, you might even reach a breaking point. Perhaps someone on your team does something terribly wrong and it's just too much. Or perhaps you see a profound injustice, but only the other side truly seems motivated to address it. You're pro-life, and that's the reason why you want to join a throng of thousands to say words that are necessary and true in Black Lives Matter 
But the instant you do, you get the questions and critiques. Are you a cultural Marxist now? Don't you know about Mm. critical race theory? Have you read the official Black Lives Matter website? When all you wanted to do was stand against racism and brutality, a cause that is unquestionably just. And then he says, more and more thoughtful, mainly young Christians say to me, I'm pro-life. I believe in religious freedom and free speech. Uh, I think we should welcome immigrants and refugees, and I desperately want reconciliation. Where do I fit in? And he says, the answer is clear, nowhere. And that truth is a blessing, he says, if you embrace it. So that's kind of the underpinnings of this much longer article. He says, increasingly, he's coming across people, and I would echo this, who are going, I don't feel like I fit in this two-party system, as David Coises talked about in the first segment, first hour. I don't fit in this either conservative or progressive Republican or Democrat, but French is taking an interesting way. He's saying to not fit uh, and to feel like you don't fit anywhere is actually a blessing if you choose to embrace it. Yeah. Let me just read the, uh, the quote from Tim Keller. He includes not surprisingly, I think Keller puts mm-hmm. it really well. He says this emphasis on package deals puts pressure on Christians in politics. For example, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians should be committed to racial justice and the poor, but also to the understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing family. One of those views seems liberal and the other looks oppressively conservative. The historical Christian positions on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments. That's kind of I think he tweeted it out a little more succinctly. He's like, oh, maybe it was a headline or a title to a blog that the the Christian does not fit within the two political system. Like it's, it does not perfectly align yes. with either. I love that idea of package deal ethics, right, where he says it assists that you cannot work on one issue with them if you don't embrace all of their approved mm-hmm. positions. Mm-hmm. Um how do I ask this? What do you think is the motive or maybe the perceived benefit of package deal ethics from the people who are doing the packaging? Oh, that's interesting. I think it's power, right? It's like we need these people on our side. And I think we buy into it oftentimes. Like I'm going to vote Republican all the time because we think what we if, if I ever said I'm a Democrat, it says something about who I am. If I ever say I'm a Republican, it says something about who I am, even though I might agree with them on some things. Uh, and so I, I think, um, you know, we talk about tribalism here all the time. Like, I think we want to be part of the team. <laughs> they use team in this earlier. We want to be part of the team and we want to be part of the group. Uh, and, and so if most of your friends, most everyone's Republican, then, OK, I'll, I'll keep going that way. I think there's a lot to it. I, I just love what he says near the end here. He says, To put it differently, your commitment to Christ is permanent and eternal. Your commitment to a party or a politician is transient and ephemeral. I I think that is so well said and unfortunately is not how many of us kind of do our politics. I remember, too, I've I've mentioned this on the show. I think I have. This was, um, oh, boy, ISIS was like really picking up steam. I remember that. I remember asking uh, our office administrator if they would set up coffee with me with with any islamic leader in the in the area that would 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 have me really and so i just began to have these like one-on-one conversations and that's a whole Mm -hmm. other experience that like changed my life to be honest but i remember sitting with one uh one local leader and he said listen both of our holy books talk about like loving our neighbor would would you be open to doing that together Mm -hmm. and i thought man i would but i was immediately met by a lot of fear and opposition. Like how can we in any ways as a church link arms with, 
the the Muslim community down the road, we we don't agree with their conclusions on a whole bunch of things. I'm like, yeah, but we do agree on this, though. Is it mm-hmm. is it OK for us to link arms and work together toward this thing that we agree with and not feel the pressure to, like, convince the other to buy into everything else? You know what I mean? Like, and I just remember there being a lot of. uh a lot of a lot of tension there and, yeah, and being really yeah. n- not necessarily surprised by it, but really intrigued by it. And I, I totally get what French is getting after here. We should have committed like four more segments just to read the whole article. <laughs> yes. It's it's so good. I, I know I say this at the end of every segment. I cannot encourage you enough. Go to the Facebook page or better yet, just subscribe to his blog and uh, and read it for yourself, because I think it's really, really good. And we would love to know your thoughts. Coming up next, a topic, unfortunately, that Brian and I have to talk about a lot lately is Zoom. And Microsoft came out recently suggesting a very interesting length of time for Zoom every day to avoid what they call brain fatigue. And we're going to talk about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I do remember you, Brian, saying yesterday how strange it is to not say along with and then my name. I I completely hear you on that one. That is, it just happens. It's autopilot almost. And we we should come up with a game. Like right, right before we're live, the other person has to like offer up a word that they have to incorporate into the introduction or something like that. That would be... Fun slash disastrous, don't you think? Yeah, yeah uh, it would be. When I was at Wheaton, uh, however many years ago, 20, 25 years ago, I uh, I called the football and basketball games while I was there. Mm. And it was the local, you know, Wheaton College Station. So nobody was really listening. We knew that. <laughs> and so my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, right uh, she used to, she would listen because, you know, we were dating at the time. So she's like, of course I'm going to listen. And uh <laughs> She, before every broadcast, she would give me the most random word to have to get in. And it was like our thing. And it was like trying to get that. in, try to get in, you know, hippopotamus to a football broadcast. And so <laughs> all that to say in much the same way, I think it would be a fun game. <laughs> I like that a whole lot. Did I ever tell you about the time that I accidentally became the announcer for a local uh, soapbox derby race? No, tell me. No, there's not enough time. It's a whole thing. I'll <laughs> I'll tell you the story another time because it sounds made up. Like it sounds it sounds like it's from a movie, and it's one of my favorite memories from living in Elgin. Uh, also, real briefly, it's National Brandied Fruit Day. Huh. I'm not sure I know what that is. I don't either. This is where I. Well, this is the part of the show where I look it up on Google. Because is it simply brandy. brandy and fruit? I mean, that sounds about right. It's also National Pharmacy Technician Day. Also okay. under weird. I don't know why this is under weird pro-life day of silent solidarity. Why is that a weird? Uh, it's weird that it's weird. Yes. Yeah, no kidding. Then lastly, National Youth Confidence Day. Do they really need a day? Let's be honest. <laughs> I think they're doing just fine. <laughs> Sorry. Was that was that out loud? Anywho, <laughs> uh, should we get into this article? Yeah, let's get into this article. So this is before for, we tell uh, them that brandy, I, I brandy fruit I knew is simply brandy and fruit. I knew. I knew. <laughs> I'm done. When I began to make the turn, I said, there's no way that Brian will actually let this happen. He's going to have to interject. Brandy and fruit. That he learned what brandied fruit was. I'm done. I'm I'm, out. And then I knew you were going to say, I'm done. I'm out. (laughs) We've done this for too long together. I was going to say, I've stockpiled 17 hours of just that clip. I'm done. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out. Oh, my god! That was vacation. <laughs> why, why did I even try? I literally can feel it on my bones. I'm like, well, uh, here's an article out of, hold on real quick. 
Brandy you're fruit. The one, you're the one who brought up brandy fruit and said oh, you didn't know what it was. Don't put this on me like it's, it's my on fault. Us. It's, it's on not, us. Absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. Okay. Are you ready? I am so ready. Bark twice if you're in Milwaukee. Um, <laughs> from Business Standard, <laughs> here's some news from Microsoft. Some people are like, is Microsoft still a thing? Yes, very much a thing. Um, according to Microsoft, due to high levels of sustained concentration, the brain fatigue begins to set in 30 to 40 minutes into a video meeting. So they're going to make the case, I guess, that we should limit video meetings to 30 minutes to avoid brain fatigue. Before I even get into this article, Brian, have you in the last seven or eight months had a Zoom meeting that lasted more than 30 minutes? Oh, gosh, yeah. In fact, I was just telling you before we did this, I'm preparing for my hour and a half elder Zoom call tonight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you even said, like, I, I don't feel like there's many that are less. I did a uh, and it was really a good one. But with a staff member, I had one this after this morning that was probably, gosh, it might have been an hour and a half also. So, yeah, this is interesting because most of mine are more. And I'm sure you, you're working the same way, too. Well, that's what's alarming about this. And again, yes. I do feel like. All of this is still relatively new for us in terms of like data, in terms of how we actually. But Microsoft, it's not like, hey, Uncle Carl said we should limit it to 30. You're like, no, this is like a, a pretty substantial study from a substantial company. The article goes on in the second paragraph. Moreover, those who work from remote locations for a longer time, it actually becomes more difficult for them to adapt to office settings afterwards, according to the company. So huh. that's the added piece of this as, you know, we're we're talking about a community like a re-entry plan. Uh, but then like you were saying at the beginning of the show, like a lot of numbers are trending in the wrong direction. So who knows if that plan will actually happen. You know what I mean? There's a lot of other components there. Um, brain fatigue. I've probably been more cognizant of like just eye fatigue. Like just, it hurts my eyes to be yeah. looking at a screen all day long. I don't know that I've thought that much about brain fatigue, um, but I certainly have not thought all that much about, how difficult it will be to reacclimate to the office. And maybe that's just, maybe it's either my wiring or I'm just like totally naive. Mm-hmm. That doesn't like if let's just say, and I know this is not an actual possible scenario, but like we woke up tomorrow, virus eradicated. It's all completely gone. They say, Hey, give it a week just to make sure, but y'all can go back to normal, you know, next week. I've not given much thought to any level of difficulty that I would have reentering an office place. If yeah. if there literally was like, hey, zero threat, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus told us all in a vision, like it's just gone. Don't don't worry about it. Um, the reacclimation in conjunction with the video meeting length is to me is like a really it's an interesting study that I, I don't know that I've thought that much about. Yeah, I, I think it about your example there because you work in a setting where there's lots of people. Uh, in fact, the, your church kind of functions in like one big room, right? Essentially, you yeah. guys don't have offices. Right. I think somebody for your personality would probably be like, man, I've missed this so much. There's probably people in your organization who are like, oh, man, like the the overload of people's voices and just being, uh, you mm-hmm. know, the people. I think you enjoy like just the conversations that break out and probably right. the collaboration. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, and other people are probably like, oh, I'm just going to keep getting distracted. And that's where it probably become difficult. But uh, yeah, there probably is a personality thing to this. But it's interesting. This this study, they said they started this pre-COVID. They were just trying to talk about right. what are the between remote working and in person. Uh, and this shouldn't surprise many of us. But it said the study found that remote collaboration is more mentally challenging than in-person collaboration. It's harder to do. It, it wears you out more quickly. 
it is interesting, as you said, that the answer to that is to limit it to 30, 40 minutes. That becomes really difficult to do. Yeah, I don't I don't know how you like it does make sense that it would be more difficult for all the reasons that we've talked about probably too many times at this point, you know, body language. Um, but even like like, would you think that Zoom collaboration could be improved if you instructed people just to back further away from the camera so that people could see body language? Do you think little shifts like that would actually be helpful? Maybe. Maybe I hadn't thought of that that deeply, but yeah, that could help. Um, yeah, it's just so hard. Like everyone that I know who's working over Zoom or trying to do small groups over Zoom or Bible studies, I've yet to hear anybody who's like, I love this. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. this is great. Everyone's like, whatever. Like it's Zoom. We have to do it right now. Another fascinating part of the study is they said people who start in remote collaboration uh, struggle if that's their first meeting with each other, if this is their thing, they then struggle when they get in person. Like they, it's not apples to apples. If you could do remote that you could do in person together. I think that's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of research here and there's no telling. Like you said, the whole Zoom work environment is so new for all of us that, uh, or not all of us, but a lot of us that what will the result be when we're back in offices together or yeah, there's no telling. I think this is kind of uncharted territory for sure. Well, and there's another article that we didn't have time to get to that. Maybe I'll, I'll put in later in the week from a fast company. And the headline is that zoom towns are exploding in the West and many cities aren't ready for the onslaught. I don't know if you've heard this term. No zoom towns. Okay. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll leave you with bated breath. Then maybe that'll be like a, a full day of a segue or a teaser that we'll <laughs> talk <laughs> about that. Later, it. It, it's re- the, the way that the human condition still wants to experience community and grouping, uh, but having to do so in a digital way to me, I, I don't is so endlessly fascinating, even though it's still, you know, a, a bit discouraging, to be honest. Um, it is something that I'm I I can't stop thinking about. I just think it's really it's interesting. And I, I can't wait to, like, look back on this year, a year from now with you know the new knowledge that we'll have and what it looked like even looking back to some of our yeah. shows from like March and April the ways that we would begin the show apologizing talking about covid you know <laughs> so like hey funny. sorry we know this is like dominating everyone's thought like gosh little did we know back in March little and April did we know. how big a conversation this would be either way it's on the facebook so page true. we would love to know what you think uh coming up next we're going to talk enneagram and anger i'm going to try something new in terms of format it, the article from elevin is about how each enneagram type can handle their anger better that's coming up next year on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm, and you've mentioned that you know you you've not yet uh taken a deep dive into enneagram which is totally okay <laughs> but i actually think this might be really helpful and maybe by the end of this interview you'll have a little more clarity around your enneagram type if you're unfamiliar well you can search it yourself i'm not going to give you a uh a quick course on it, but the uh, over at relevant magazine, they did an interesting article, how each Enneagram type can handle their anger, which I thought was interesting because it feels like a lot of people are, are angry right now. And, and they talk about in this article that anger is a God given emotion that isn't sinful yet. God commands us not to sin in our anger. Anger is okay to feel. We all feel it, but there are God centered ways to feel and process it. So there are nine types of the Enneagram and so I'd love for us to just take a minute per type because my hope is that this is at least helpful for someone, whether or not you know your type. And you can go and read the article yourself later if, uh, if you want to take a deeper dive. But why don't you kick us off, Brian, with type number one? Yeah, as you said, I've never taken the Enneagram. I, I 
like watching the social dilemma. I've always been like, I totally want to do this. <laughs> I'm sure that fits in here somewhere. Yeah. Uh, type one is the reformer. What makes you angry? Nothing riles you up more than people who don't do their part. For real, how hard is it to communicate expectations, pull your own weight, and follow the rules? As a type one, you're sensitive to injustice, a lack of control, inefficiency, people, quote, getting away with poor choices. Uh, a type one said there's a deep sense within me that if everyone just did their part, we could be have a happy uh, and efficient world. So what's behind your anger? Because type ones are in the body center, you are concerned with having and maintaining control and power. While other types may react to situations because of fear or shame, your type often feels anger. Uh, how you express your anger, you suppress it, which evolves into resentment, then seething, then explosion. After you get angry, you may get mad at yourself for not being perfect because you shared your frustration. You may even feel like you had the need to apologize that you got angry because it shows that even you, the perfectionist, aren't always pleasing to others. So how to process your anger now in a God-centered way. Bring your anger to God. He's not surprised by it. Uh, number two, it's hard for your type when things don't go as planned. As an antidote to this frustration, spend time in stillness, not doing, perfecting, fixing, planning, or spinning. And number three, journal your angry thoughts or talk through your anger anger with a neutral third party. So that's anger and type one. I'm realizing it may have been a bit optimistic to try and get through all nine of these, but I'm going to try it anyway. We can do it. Here we go. All right. Type two, the helper. What makes you angry? What makes you the most angry is when you're unappreciated by those you sacrifice to serve a type two said a lack of responsibility and affirmations are my triggers. What's behind your anger because type twos are in the heart center. You're concerned with having and maintaining esteem and affection before you get angry. You're more likely to feel shame how you express your anger. You tend to suppress your anger because it seems scary and you want to be liked by those that you're trying to help. You may also say, I'm not mad. I'm just hurt in order to mask the true extent of your anger and then how to process your anger in a God centered way. When you feel anger rise up, no, it's okay to be angry. You're allowed to be angry. Number two, it's hard for your type to understand who you are if you're not helping others, but this misunderstanding can lead directly to martyrdom. And number three, practice expressing one of your needs with safe people, which mm. gets easier with time. That's number two, the helper. Number three, the achiever. What makes you angry? You can't stand anything that slows you down or anyone who fails to acknowledge your hard work. You're especially sensitive to inefficiency, a lack of control and time wasting. So what's behind your anger? Uh, you're concerned with having and maintaining esteem and affection. Before you get angry, you're more likely to feel shame. Type threes cannot stand not being able to control outcomes, not meeting your own expectations and not rising up to all the quote shoulds your inner circle throw at you. So how do you, how you express your anger? Uh, you push down your anger because you want to look good and it seems shameful to lose your cool in public. If you're feeling simmer over into direct expression of anger, it could take the form of yelling or passive aggressive behavior. So how do you process it in a God-centered way? Uh, number one, if your anger stems from people getting in your way from accomplishing tasks, ask God to give you the eyes to see people as he sees them. Number two, spend time in solitude and ask God to show you how he sees you. And number three, think through where your shame comes from, not being able to meet expectations, feeling trapped in the shoulds, and ask God to help you apply his word to your situation. Yeah, as a as a three, uh, that resonates a lot. In fact, uh, on Friday, Sean Palmer just wrote a book, a devotional for threes specifically. And uh, so if that's you at all, you're not going to miss that on Friday. That's really good. 
Number four, the individualist. Some will call the four uh, the romantic. What makes you angry is being dismissed. You're frustrated by people who dismiss your feelings, gifts, and commitments. What's behind your anger? Because type fours are in the heart center, you're concerned with having and maintaining esteem and affection. Before you get angry, you're more likely to feel shame. You may feel shame because while you long to be viewed as distinguished and unique from others, you're not sure that you actually are. How do you express your anger? Type four's anger cycle looks like this. Suppression to sadness to explosion to guilt for outburst to anger that no one understands you to guilt that you're mad to crying. This cycle will continue if not broken in a healthy way. So how to process your anger in a God-centered way. One, you're allowed to feel every emotion, but your emotions can drive the bus. Remember, your feelings are not always factual and can be fickle. Number two, because it's excruciating for your type to be misunderstood, spend time alone with God so he can give you freedom from rising and falling with every emotion you feel. And number three, find someone who loves you and understands you who will let you share your emotions without judgment. It's unhealthy to hold on to these intense feelings, so let them out. Number five is the investigator. What makes you angry? You focus more on information and less on emotion. When you do get angry, a lack of respect is what gets you there. So what's behind this anger? Uh, Type fives, uh, you're concerned with having and maintaining safety and security. You don't go to anger first, but fear. You fear you won't be able to function in the world. From this root spring fears of being helpless, incapable, not having all the information and feeling out of control of your circumstances. So here's how you express it as a way to get to get space between you and your anger. You suppress your emotions. However, you're not afraid to confront what makes you upset. If your anger does manifest itself, it comes out as uh, snippiness, yelling, crying or sarcasm. So how do you process this in a God centered way? When you feel anger pushing you toward isolation, use that as a cue to draw close to Christ. Uh, Number two, it's hard for your type to be disrespected. So remember, God always respects you and is gentle with your heart. And number three, spend time in silence, knowing that the Holy Spirit will keep you in check as you listen to his still small voice. Okay, we're going to come down to the wire on this one. We're going to make it. Type type number six, the loyalist. What makes you angry? Nothing gets a type six angry faster than inconsiderate behavior. Type sixes are especially sensitive to disingenuousness, bullying, demands on their time and injustice. A type six said she gets angry when people don't follow through with something important that they said that they would do. So what's behind your anger? Type sixes are in the head center. You're concerned with having and maintaining safety and security. Your first reaction is an anger. Instead, your primary emotion tends to be fear. So how you express your anger. If you're angry at an acquaintance, you may pick your battles carefully and handle the situation factually. If you're mad at someone you love deeply, you may either avoid the person altogether out of a fear of conflict or directly confront to restore the hurt relationship. Your anger, which masks your fear, may take the form of yelling, having outbursts, and or stomping away. So how to process your anger in a God-centered way. Uh, take the root of your anger, which is fear to Christ. Number two, spend time in silence listening to God to remind him or to be reminded that he is watchful over you. And number three, find a safe person or grab a journal and share what's bothering you. Memorize and repeat God's word when you feel overcome by anger, which is those are probably just good for anybody, to be honest. Absolutely. Number seven, the enthusiast. Uh, you get angry when they believe uh, when you believe others have overstepped their bounds, leaving you without ownership, authority or options in a situation. So what's behind this anger? You're concerned with having and maintaining safety and security. So your biggest fear is being trapped in pain. To avoid caught in, being caught in your hurt, you want to have choices. How do you express your anger? Well, unlike many types, you are likely to directly express your anger. Occasionally, your anger pops up out of nowhere. And just as suddenly, 
you're ready to move on. However, those who experienced your anger may not get over it as quickly. So how to process your anger in a God-centered way. Breathe slowly and pray before expressing your anger, even if it's simple words like Jesus help me. Your type is especially sensitive to having limits or boundaries. Spend time in silence with God to ask him if limits are actually his way of protecting you. And number three, find a safe person who will help you process all of those feelings. All right, I'm going to call it. We don't have time to do both, and I don't want one number to feel left out all by itself. So I'm just going to, I'm going to stop there. But it's from Relevant Magazine. It's on our Facebook page. Whether or not you're an Enneagram person or not, I found this to be really helpful. Plus, what Brian and I didn't mention is that under each number, there's links to like further reading. Like if you're reading and thinking, oh, man, that's totally my number or that's that's totally an area that I want to grow in. Uh, highly recommend that you check out some of those sources, even if you don't agree with every word they say. I think heading into election, dealing with the trauma of a pandemic and racial injustice and everything else we've been experiencing, how we deal with anger, especially in a, in a God-centered way, I just think is really, really timely. And I find these suggestions to not only be pretty wise, but also really practical. And I, I just, you know, that's our hope for the show sometimes to bring just really practical suggestions or options to you. And uh, we hope that that's really helpful to wrap up the show today, though. And I love this phrase. This is out of the Gospel Coalition. How to stay awake in a world of spiritual tranquilizers. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is here to welcome. And this was just from, what is the date today? The 20th. This was yesterday from Justin Dill, Dillahay. Is that how you say it? I think so. Looks Justin right. Dillahay over at Gospel Coalition, how to stay awake in a world of spiritual tranquilizers. I don't know that I've heard that phrase, but I like it. So this here's how he yeah. begins. He says, it might seem odd to lump drowsiness and drunkenness together. It's not likely... It's not like they're moral equivalents, but that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, telling us to, quote, not to sleep as others do, but to keep awake and be sober. Paul isn't issuing a call for mass insomnia. Rather, he's tapping into a common biblical metaphor of sin as sleepiness and stupor and righteousness as wakefulness and sobriety. Throw in some imagery of light and darkness day and night, and you've got a powerful imaginative appeal to be transformed by the renewing of our minds rather than conforming to the evil age. This passage is framed against the coming day of the Lord when Jesus will bring sudden destruction on his enemies. Paul's goal here is to help us wake up and get ready for it. Note Paul's other metaphor, let us keep awake and be sober. Though morally different, Paul lumps together sleeping and getting smashed for two reasons. First, I just like reading getting smashed in the gospel coalition first, because both normally happen at night. Those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. That's first Thessalonians five, seven. Second, both lower your defenses and leave you vulnerable. If someone wanted to pick your pocket with a minimal threat of danger and maximum hope of success, his safest bet would be to wait until you're drunk or asleep since that's when your guard is down. But if you're awake and sober, you can be alert and watchful. You can be on your game mentally and spiritually. Paul wants us to keep a clear head, prepare our minds for action, keep a firm grip on reality, see things as they really are, not as they appear in a dream or in a drunken stupor. I'll read just a little bit more and then get your thoughts. He's not simply telling us to avoid toking or binge drinking, though that certainly included Romans 13, Ephesians 5. Make no mistake, getting drunk or stoned is a shameful state that robs us of our reason, endangers others, and makes us sitting ducks for the devil. We should avoid it like the plague. But we also need to realize there are more things 
than pot that can cloud our minds. He's really going after weed in this one, isn't he? I've more than any other gospel coalition article probably ever has. <laughs> I didn't really think that that was going to be the angle that we were going to take here. It's like, wow, he really references the, uh, the Mary Jane a good deal here, but I'll, I'll stop there again. You know, you and I draw from a number of different resources, a number of different sites and blogs that write, you know, in very different ways. This one certainly feels a lot like gospel coalition so far, but I'd love to know what, what you think of his, uh, his premise. Yeah, I think the premise, uh, the call to be alert, to be awake, uh, to be sober, uh, is I think an important one in our spiritual life, right? It's that, um, it, it is this idea, uh, that, that, you know, temptation lurks, that there's an enemy. And, and so we need to be, uh, we need to be, um, clear headed or awake, as he says in here. So I think it's interesting. I've never, uh, really thought about the two linking together, but they really do have kind of the same effect. Uh, when you're talking about this um, the spiritual battle that's going on around us. He goes on to talk about the world being flooded with spiritual narcotics. He says Satan has polluted the atmosphere with them. The air of this present evil age is filled with enough intoxicating incense to keep us stumbling around in a spiritual haze until either we die or the day of the Lord hits us like a freight train. I'm curious about that imagery, like the notion that there are things that either intentionally or unintentionally are sort of dulling our spiritual senses i'm i'm less interested in talking about alcohol or weed in this segment i'm more interested in like the things that sort of numb us because here's the thing that i found brian i wasn't really planning on going this direction but it does feel like from a church perspective there's been a long history of sort of railing against uh, alcoholism or substance abuse Mm -hmm. and very little about Mm -hmm. like escapism you know i mean like it's it's one thing to sort of wag a finger at someone who like drinks too much. And we, you know, we need to in love, like really walk alongside someone who is in that place. But I don't know that I can even think of a time where I've heard someone say, Hey, you're watching seven hours of Netflix every night. That's probably also spiritually dangerous. Like that's, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't harm anyone in a traditional sense of the word, but it's still probably like he's saying, that might be a spiritual narcotic. That might be a spiritual tranquilizer. You're just sort of numbing yourself to the, and I'm again, gosh, I'm not saying like, don't enjoy some Netflix like that. We, For sure. Especially right For now, sure. like we need or at least foul. We need some time just like I'm going to turn my brain off. But at what point do you say, uh, man, you're doing this morally neutral thing, but way too much of it. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? What do, yeah. you, what do you think of that? And his and the imagery fits, right? Like you would say, hey, enjoy a glass of wine. Wine is good. Uh, but you know, too much wine and you start getting Mm. yourself in trouble. We talk about this with social media all the time, right? This endless scrolling. Anytime I've been on social media for a long time or just kind of go back to it, it, you do feel like this numbing of your brain, Mm. (laughs) like, or when you're just sitting and watching TV. So I do think these all go together. And I think you're a hundred percent correct that there are certain things culturally that we don't speak against that, that take us away from, um, from what's important or numb our minds, like you said. Yeah, like a good show on Netflix yeah. is great. Eight hours a day of Netflix, problematic. Uh, checking Facebook to see what your friends are doing is great. Uh, you know, multiple hours a day on Facebook, going to be problematic. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, so I think they do all fit together. I think you're making a good point. I like for how sure. he ends this here. I, I'd heard this particular quote from Sam Elberry. He says, Sam Elberry likes to say that sanctification is a matter of reducing the culture shock of living in the new heavens and new earth. I don't know if you've heard that before. Sanctification uh, is sort of like a fancy theological word for like how, how we become more like Christ. So reducing the culture shock of living in the new heaven and new earth. And then he says, to tweak the metaphor, 
We might say it's like reducing the blinding brightness of the age to come by gazing on Christ through faith. That's a pretty interesting way of putting it. The idea of of fixing our gaze, our our eyesight, our posture so fully on Christ that in the new heaven and new earth, there it it is a less of a shock to our system because we've been like living in that space. And I think even about like some of the stories that I've heard of people who, you know, as as they're passing from this world to the next there's almost like a, a conversation with Jesus happening. You know, I've heard a couple of stories mm-hmm. like that. We're like, wow, this person yeah. is in such union, such relationship with Jesus that as they begin to pass, it's sort of like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go spend time with a friend. Like it, it is in this like panic and fear, you know, that we often see depicted. It's sort of like, mm-hmm, yep, this is, this is now my time. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't really plan on going <laughs> that direction with, with that's this true, though it's a valid, right. true, it's it is true. true and i think that's a, that's a good call that's why i wanted to put it at the end of the show here because um mm-hmm. you know brian and i are, are just as susceptible to this as anybody to the spiritual numbness the tranquilizers and the narcotics of things that distract us or pull us away from the stuff that really matters more importantly the one who really matters and i i just kind of want to end with that call like as we head into an election and all sorts of unknowns and rising numbers in Illinois and all, all kinds of stuff that can kind of pull us off track. Our hope and prayer is that we would continue to kind of fix our eyes on the one who gives us life and purpose and mission and meaning. And uh, I, I don't know about you, but that's something that I need to regularly remember. And uh, like always, all these articles on our Facebook page, highly encourage you to check them out. Leave your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, that concludes our show today. So for Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins. And you, my friends, have been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life.